Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Welcome to Australia on this day. I'm Michael Adams, and today we're going back to Monday, the 4th of August, 1845. That was the day that the ship Cataraki was dashed against rocks off King Island in Bass Strait. And though this happened 175 years ago today, it remains our worst civil maritime disaster. From the mid-1830s, the colonial government, trying to reshape a country that had been built on convict transportation, encouraged the emigration of free settlers from England to Australia. That meant if you and your family were of good character and willing to move to Australia, your fares could be paid in part or full by the colonial government. This bounty emigration scheme provided a strong incentive for people to come to a land of increasing opportunity for European colonisers. Yet, picking up and relocating to the other side of the world was then, as it is now, a pretty huge life choice. But back then, it was also like a voyage to an alien planet, filled with risks and unknowns. Australia's harsh climate and geography, hardy flora and bizarre fauna, convict economy and indigenous people were all very far removed from the lived experience of ordinary English folk. Living in the Antipodes would present many challenges. Before you tackled any of those, though, first, you had to get there alive. Though steamships travelled between England and Australia from 1831 onwards, the vast majority of vessels making the voyage were still only under sail, and thus completely at the mercy of the elements. A voyage down under, if nothing went wrong, could take as long as four months. And while you were sailing, conditions were hard. Steerage passengers had cramped dark quarters below deck and below the waterline. As such, seasickness was rampant. Food was stodgy and came in tins. Hygiene was poor and outbreaks of diseases like dysentery and typhoid could be every bit as deadly as that other great danger, an out-of-control fire on board the ship. Then, of course, there were the high seas and dangerous weather. If the ship went down at sea or was wrecked on a coastline, the chances of survival were pretty slender because few crew and passengers knew how to swim and there were seldom sufficient lifeboats for all the souls on board. If you were lucky enough to survive a ship sinking and made it to land, then there was every chance you'd face a slow death from starvation or exposure because there was no way to let people know what had happened or where you were. At least those making the journey to Australia on the bark Cataraki could take comfort in knowing it was one of the finest ships at sea. Built in 1840 in Quebec, the vessel weighed a little over 800 tonnes and it was 138 feet long by 22 feet across. The Cataraki was bought by British company Smith & Sons who made their money from transporting bounty emigrants. On the 20th of April 1845, the Cataraki sailed from Liverpool under the command of Captain C.W. Finlay. But in a quirk of the time, the ship's chief surgeon, Dr. Charles Carpenter, had charge of the emigrants and thus held much power over decision-making. 
Reports vary, saying there were 39 or 40 other crew members aboard, including Dr Carpenter's brother, who was also a surgeon, and Chief Officer Thomas Guthrie. Kataraki carried 52 families, totalling 313 people, along with 57 single women and single men. So, in all, there were some 411 or 412 people aboard. As far as these voyages went, the trip was unremarkable for the first three months. One crew member was washed overboard and drowned, five babies were born and another six died. In the middle of July, the good luck ran out and Kataraki ran into bad weather with strong gales and incessant rain. For four days, as he sailed across the Great Australian Bight, Captain Finlay was unable to take an observation and so was relying on dead reckoning as the weather worsened to the intensity of a hurricane. Not wanting to risk his ship and passengers, Captain Finlay on the night of the 3rd of August hove to and remained lying into the early hours of the next morning. Then, reportedly at the urging of the chief surgeon, Dr Edward Carpenter, who wanted to land in Melbourne as soon as possible, Captain Finlay decided to sail on for Port Phillip Bay through the darkness, driving rain, fierce winds and mountainous seas. While that sounds reckless, Captain Finlay was also risking getting swamped by staying hove too. And he thought it was safe because his dead reckoning put him in open seas, 60 or 70 miles northwest of King Island. His men were looking out for Cape Otway at 4.30am when there came the sickening crunch. Kataraki had struck a reef. Captain Finlay and his men thought they'd hit the mainland. In reality, they'd struck the west coast of King Island at the entrance to Bass Strait. As soon as the ship hit, water rushed in through the pierced hull and immediately there was four feet of water in the hold. Panicked passengers rushed up to the deck as waves pounded the Kataraki. Ladders between decks were smashed by debris, leaving terrified people trapped below and screaming for help. The crew pulled up as many passengers as they could to the deck. There was little safety there. Huge seas washing over Kataraki swept many to their deaths by drowning, while those who could swim were dashed to pieces on the reef. 30 minutes after hitting the reef, Kataraki rolled onto its starboard side, hurling yet more men, women and children into the boiling ocean. Captain Finlay ordered the mast be cut, hoping this would right the ship, but it didn't work. By now, all those trapped below had drowned. Captain Finlay shouted for everyone still alive to hold on to whatever part of the wreck they could. Dawn's light revealed the extent of the devastation. The water was filled with dead bodies and many more hung on the reef. 200 passengers and crew still clung on to what was left of the vessel but it was in the process of breaking up and every new wave saw more people washed away. What was so frustrating was that daylight showed that the shore was just 500 yards beyond that jagged reef. At four in the afternoon, Kataraki broke in half and right then, between 70 and 100 people drowned or were smashed on the reef. Those still alive stretched ropes along what was left of the ship to better hold on. Yet there was less and less of the boat to support the ropes as the upper deck began to disintegrate under the pounding of the waves. Survivors tried to make a buoy out of wreckage, hoping it could carry a crew member to shore so he could set up a lifeline back to the ship. This failed when the buoy's rope became tangled in seaweed. 
At 5 o'clock in the afternoon, Kataraki broke up further, sending more people to their deaths, and this left just 70 survivors, all crowded onto the forecastle. Dr. Edward Carpenter, brother of the chief surgeon, the bosun and four of the crew, tried to launch the one remaining quarterboat. It capsized immediately and all six men drowned. With night falling, survivors lashed themselves to the wreck, but during the darkness, many fell into the water or were drowned by huge waves right where they were tied to the wreckage. By morning, just 30 people were left, though they weren't going to last long because the forecastle was being pounded to matchwood by the relentless waves. The captain tied a rope to himself and tried to swim to shore, only to have to be dragged back aboard the wreckage, half drowned. Everyone knew the end had come. Lashings were untied so that survivors would have some chance of staying alive when the ship sank. Now a wave washed Chief Officer Thomas Guthrie to the bowsprit. From there, he caught a glimpse of the captain, the second mate and the steward clinging at the bows along with about 18 or 20 passengers. Washed to a floating piece of wreckage, Thomas Guthrie grabbed a plank. He jumped into the water and hoped for a miracle. Thomas Guthrie got one. He was carried over the reef and washed up on the beach. There he found two other men who'd gotten ashore during the night, one other crew member and a passenger called Solomon Brown. Encouraged by Thomas Guthrie's survival, other crew members tried to follow and six made it to land alive. Soon after that, what was left of Kataraki went beneath the waves. Of the 409 or 410 people who'd been aboard when Kataraki approached Port Phillip Bay, just nine had survived. And only one of the emigrants, Solomon Brown, had lived, his wife and four children having drowned. These nine survivors might not live long. It was the middle of winter, they were exhausted, hungry, thirsty and shipwrecked on a forbidding shoreline. On the beach, they found a tin of preserved chicken that had washed up, which they shared, and then they tried to sleep under a wet blanket they'd found on the corpse-littered shoreline. The next morning, the men found a cask of fresh water among the flotsam, but they were unable to make a fire. They did see smoke, though, and, thinking they were on the mainland, believed it might be coming from the campfire of an Aboriginal tribe. No doubt this filled them with apprehension. But when a man approached, he was European. This was David Howie, an official and fur sealer who'd seen debris in the water and set about searching the entire island, helped by his partner Oakley and two Aboriginal men. These saviours gave the exhausted survivors food, water, and they built them a fire and a shelter. Problem was, Mr Howie had supplies, but he didn't have a boat because his own had been wrecked earlier. Like the Kataraki survivors, he was hoping to see a passing ship. Over the next five weeks, Mr Howie and his friends hauled hundreds of pounds of supplies 40 miles from their camp to the Kataraki survivors near the beach. In addition to keeping watch for a rescue ship, Thomas Guthrie and his fellow survivors spent their days doing the grim work of burying the dead. More than 300 bodies, many in horrible condition, had been retrieved from the beach and they buried these people in four mass graves. What must have made this task almost unbearable was that these people were their friends, workmates and, in the case of Mr Brown, his family members. On Sunday the 7th of September 1845, they spotted the steamship Midge and signalled this vessel with a fire. 
Rescue operations were carried out and six days later, the nine survivors arrived at Hobson's Bay. The story of the shipwreck, as recounted here, is based on what Thomas Guthrie and other survivors told the Melbourne newspapers upon their arrival. While the terrible news spread through the Australian colonies in September, it'd be another five months before it reached London, breaking the hearts of thousands of people who'd been imagining their loved ones making new lives for themselves in that sunny, far-off land. For two survivors of Cataraki, fate still had cruel tricks to play, confirming the belief held by some sailors that if you were marked to drown at birth, you wouldn't die peacefully in your bed. The story goes that Solomon Brown swore he would never return to the sea. He wouldn't, because just a few months later, he was found drowned in a Melbourne creek that was only 18 inches deep. I haven't been able to find newspaper reports from the time confirming this. If true, it suggests death by misadventure, possibly the result of the trauma he'd experienced. As for Chief Officer Thomas Guthrie, well, he did make the colonial newspapers one more time. He'd made no such vow regarding returning to the ocean. Thomas was a sailor, and that was his life. In October 1848, he had captaincy of a ship called Tigress and was again bound for Port Phillip Bay from England. Tigress hit bad weather off South Australia and, yes, was smashed against rocks. Thomas Guthrie, he'd been in a tougher spot than this. He tied a rope to himself and swam for shore. This time, he didn't make it. I'm Michael Adams and you've been listening to Australia on This Day. Make sure you're subscribed to get every episode as soon as it's released. If you've enjoyed the show, I'd love it if you could leave a review and rating at iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. And if you're after more tales from our fascinating history, check out my other show, Forgotten Australia. This podcast was produced in the Blue Mountains of New South Wales on land traditionally owned by the Darug and Gundungurra people. Thanks for listening and catch you tomorrow. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.